So we started a new series last week called Amazing Grace. And in this series, we've been discovering some of these aspects of God's grace and how amazing it is. That for those of us who thought we knew all of God's grace, hopefully this is a little bit more. And uh, for those of us who have never really encountered what God's grace is all about, um, we're really trying to uh, show you this amazing wonderful God. So if you weren't here last week, that's okay. I'm going to try and catch you up the best I can. And if you were here last week and you forgot everything I said already, that's okay. I'm going to help catch you up as well. So last week we talked about how God created the whole world. And in that, this was his first huge display of grace. And he created man in his own image, Adam and Eve. And they experienced maximum amount of freedom with God. Uh, and, but then through uh, this wonderful creation and through all of God's goodness and grace, sin entered man's heart. And he blamed God for his struggles. And through sin, we messed up this perfect uh, place that God had designed for all of us. But in spite of us messing up what God had created, He chose Abraham, this undeserving man, to go in and clean up the mess that we had started. And he introduced this one-sided contract to Abraham that he said, I'm going to uphold this contract, and all you have to do is put your faith and your trust in me. This completely undeserving man now was declared righteous in the eyes of God only based on faith and not through works. There was nothing that he did right, but God declared him righteous, even though he never deserved it. And God promised Abraham he would be this father of this new nation who would know him and love him. And then as Abraham trusted him, Abraham died. But through these events, God kept his promise. And he set this precedent with Abraham that a righteous person is declared through faith and not by works. Hundreds of years before he established the law and the Ten Commandments, he established righteousness through faith. But then as Abraham died, this new nation began to form and God kept his promise. But he had also told Abraham that this nation one day will be strangers in the land and they will be held captive for 400 years. And lo and behold, as history shows, that the Israelite nation, they were held captive in Egypt for 400 years. But then Moses comes on the scene and God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to free my people from this captivity in Egypt. So Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And through the course of events, they were all let go into the desert. And here, Moses had written the first five books of the Old Testament to reintroduce this this group of people to this God who loved them and saved them and brought them out of captivity. All that they knew is they were slaves. They had never been responsible for themselves. They had no government. They had no king. They had no judicial system. They had no laws. All they had was Moses who freed them from captivity. They had an understanding 
of Egyptian religion and worldview, which very, was very polytheistic in their worldview. And they had this pillar of smoke and fire guiding them in the desert. That's really all they had. They really had no identity, and they didn't know who this God was who saved them from captivity. And so here they are, and God gave them, through Moses, the Ten Commandments, and it was a prescription of how to conduct themselves. It's within this framework that that's where we find the Ten Commandments. Apparently, these were the first commandments that God had given Moses, and there were these high-level laws that set the tone for the laws that followed. And as we read them in context, one thing becomes abundantly clear, that these ten laws and the like 600 that followed had absolutely nothing to do with where anyone spent their eternity. God was simply establishing behavioral guidelines for a group of people who had none. But not just any group, a group he had redeemed from slavery, a group he had already established as his own through Abraham and declared him righteous by faith and not by works. And he had declared this group of people his own. Now, we're going to kind of move off of some of the Old Testament laws. That was like the quickest explanation I can give. But here's a few really good things to remember in relation to grace and the law. That the Ten Commandments do not stand in contrast to grace. They are introduced within the story of grace. God initiated a relationship with his people. He even told them, Uh, what rules they had, uh, or he initiated this relationship before he told them what rules they had. And then as we learned with Adam and Eve, with their one rule, but then they had this maximum freedom, is that maximum freedom is always found under the authority of God. And God didn't give us these laws to make us good. He gave them to establish behavioral guidelines But he also gave the law to expose our own sin and our own need for him. The law confronted humanity with both the seriousness of sin and the depth of God's grace. And today, we're going to talk about, well, how are you saved by grace then? What is being saved by grace? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 20, and he explained the kingdom of heaven and grace in this way, that there was once an owner of some property, and he had this property that he needed a lot of work done. So he went and offered a group of guys, five men, let's say $100 for a 12 hours day of work. And so they went and they started working. And as they worked, it was hard, tireless labor, and the dead heat and cutting things down and making these big piles of of wood and brambles and all this stuff. And then later he offered more men to come help and more men to come help. And by the end of the day, he offered a few men one hour of work. And then as he went to pay them all, he paid them all the same. 
The people who had worked one hour, he gave them the same $100. And you can imagine as they all lined up for their payday at the end of the day, as these men heard, oh, the people in the front of the line, they only worked an hour and they got $100. Imagine the guys thinking in the back of the line, like, well, if they only worked an hour, we worked 12 hours. This, this manager is really generous. But when the manager got to these last men and said, here's your $100, they complained. And they said, how could you give those men who worked one hour the same money that we gave our that you gave us? We, we sweat for you. We broke our backs for you. We worked hard 12 hours and you gave us the same $100. And you can imagine the manager, he, he probably stopped them in their tracks and he said, did we not agree that you would work a 12-hour day for $100? And they all probably said, well, yeah. And do you not have the $100 that we agreed on? Well, yes. And then he said, well, is it not right for me to be able to be generous with my own money? And this is what Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's kind of puzzled people for thousands of years because if you tend to side with the workers who are upset about their money, you're not alone. We look at that and we go, that's not fair. It's not fair that they worked 12 hours in the hot sun and they got the same amount of money as the people who strolled on and, and uh, swept up some dust for an hour at the end of the day and got the same amount of money. That's not fair. But Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like that. But here's the thing. I only complain when the fairness scale, when being unfair works against me. Don't you do the same? That when, when some, something's unfair to you, likely you are to complain. But when unfairness works in my advantage, I call it an answered prayer. Right? <laughs> you do the same. No one has ever said, hey, that's not fair. You gave me more money than you gave them. Nope, you just put your head down and walk on by, don't you? No child has ever said, hey, no fair, you gave me a bigger cupcake. That's not how it works. Oftentimes, fair, fairness is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? That when, when unfairness goes against us, we, we complain. But when unfairness works in our advantage, oftentimes we don't turn it down, and we think it's just God blessing us. But fortunately for us, the kingdom of God does not operate according to the principles of fairness. At least not the way that we measure fairness. Because if I'm honest, I don't want God to be fair. I don't want God to be fair with me. And these men, is this story that, that we look at that and we go, how does God operate that way? Philip Yancey put it this way. He said, what those men experienced in that parable was God's scandalous mathematics of grace. That we don't understand it, but what they experienced was this scandalous mathematics of grace. But when we're in real with ourselves, when we think about our own depravity, when we think about our own stuff, when I think about all the ways that I've promised God I won't, but then I do, I don't want God to be fair with me. If fair means I get what I deserve, I don't want God to be fair. I'll opt for grace any day of the week, and I'm sure you would as well. 
But when we think about this fairness on a principle level, like we have been, it's kind of easy to quantify a little bit. But when we look at it in real-world application, sometimes it just gets, it gets at us a little bit deeper. And so let me use three different stories in the Bible to explain this. First is the man Stephen in the New Testament. Those of you who've read the New Testament at all or been around church, you may have heard the, this guy Stephen. Those of you who haven't, let me explain a little bit. When the church first started after Jesus ascended into heaven, this church, they were experiencing a lot of good times. And a lot of good was coming from the early church that we see in the book of Acts. But then at one point, there was some division that started to take place. And there were uh, uh, some of the, these uh, people were getting mad that some widows in the church were being treated unfairly, and they weren't getting the right amount of food from this food pantry that they deserve. And so here are the apostles, and what they had decided to do was let's put together a few men who are godly and they're good, and they will oversee it to make sure that it starts running smoothly. And as they prayed about who could do this, the, at the top of their list was Stephen. And Stephen had to come, he had come to the faith later in life, but he was a good man. And he was full of faith. And we, as you read in the Bible, you see amazing miracles were being done by Stephen. And his faith was great. And he was eloquent in his speech. And he was a good debater. It said that people had a hard time debating against his faith. That he was just a really good man of God. He lived an exemplary life before and after coming to know Christ. And so he was put in charge of this. They just saw amazing things take place with Stephen's life. But there was also the kind of the, the religious leaders at the time. They didn't like Stephen. And they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like that Christians were more and more Christians were believing in Christ and they were coming to know him. And they saw Stephen as a man who confronted them and he debated with them and he, he spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit. So at one point they had rounded Stephen up and they had a person that was going to blackmail Stephen. And this person came and confronted Stephen and the, the religious leaders and they said uh, uh, they, he lied about who Stephen was. Now, most men, as courageous as we think we are, right, or women, um, that when we're confronted with immense pressure like that, and you have blackmail happening, and you have all these uh, religious leaders or community leaders in your face, most people would back down. But that's not what Stephen did. Stephen, he confronted them, and he had essentially called them on their own bluff and called them wicked for what they were doing. The religious leaders did not like this by any stretch of the imagination. And we read uh, in Acts 7 this. It says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And with that, Stephen died. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He became a hero of the faith. If anyone deserved to go to heaven, it would have been Stephen. He led an exemplary life and he died a champion of the faith. And those of you who know Jesus' last words, you cannot help but see the parallel between these two where Jesus said something very similar. 
that you look at this guy and you're like, you're the guy who should be in heaven. That you're forgiving them on their own, uh, as on your own deathbed. But in that, in that story, we see that this young man named Saul, that the people threw their coats down at this young man named Saul. And Saul, at the time, he was uh, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul loved the law. Saul followed the law meticulously. Saul was, uh, he was born at the right time in the right family, and Saul just lived a life that everyone looked at, and he was uh, exceeding many of the other Jews in his own age range. He was just getting promotion after promotion after promotion. He was like the man at the time. And what Saul says that we see uh, in the book of Philippians, he writes about this. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, which means like he knew all the law. He was like a religious, you know, uh, knew all the stuff. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Faultless, that he did not fail at upholding all of the law. Saul was someone who loved the law, and he was trying to gain more and more affluence within the religious system. But then uh, the law, him loving the law so much, it it, it, uh, influenced him to do some things to persecute the church because he thought the law was uh, directing him to do that. So there was Saul on Stephen's final day as he was martyred. Saul sat and stood condoning what was taking place. And here was Saul, this man who loved the law, but then later in his, in his life, in the second half of his life, he encountered Jesus on the road of Damascus. And there he turned his life over to Christ, and he was given the new name of Paul. And we know that Paul, he believed so firmly that even though his former life of following the law meticulously, and even though it led him to murder many Christians, we know that Paul believed so earnestly that he was going to spend his life in heaven and his eternity was, was um, sealed in heaven, that we know this uh, from what he wrote about himself. But then we also see Paul became this tireless Christian missionary. He traveled throughout um, eastern the Roman Empire for 15 years, logging more than 20,000 miles, preaching, teaching, establishing churches, and writing nearly one-third of what became the New Testament. He endured hardships to advance the gospel. He suffered unjust, unjust persecution, false accusations, stoning, scourging, imprisonment, imprisonment in the service of Jesus Christ. Before his martyrdom in Rome, Paul did more to expand the kingdom of God than any person in the first century. But before Stephen and before Paul was another man. And this man, you if you've been in church, you've probably heard him. But the day that Jesus was crucified, he was crucified by two criminals. And the mere fact that these criminals were being crucified by him and they weren't described as either a slave or a zealot, it indicated they were guilty of crimes so heinous that they couldn't even be trusted with a Roman warship. 
Because Romans rarely turned, forfeited any potential power um, in order to bring people on and be rowers of their worship. That it would have meant that their crimes were so heinous, it would have meant that their crimes are so severe, and they were too violent and too unpredictable to control that they can't even row a ship, that they sent them to the cross. And so here, these two men, that their crimes were severe. They deserved death. By our standards and by their, theirs at the time, they probably deserved death. And they were getting what they had coming to them. And as Jesus is being crucified on the cross, there's these two criminals on his side. One of the criminals kind of pipes up and he says, hey, if you're God, if you're really God, why don't you just save yourself from this cross? And in the process, can you save us too? But then the other criminal on his other side, it said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. For we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then this criminal turned to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for good people, this man didn't have a prayer to stand on. He didn't have a chance. Because repentance on a cross is meaningless, isn't it? Rededication of your life when you only have an hour to live doesn't count for anything, especially when you have committed crimes so heinous like this criminal. That type of repentance is meaningless because who isn't sorry for their actions when they're facing the very penalty of it? There was nothing this guy had to promise. He had nothing to offer Jesus. Restitution for his crimes was impossible. He had no bargaining power. He had earned the cross. And he had earned an eternity separated from all that was good. He was only on his way to receiving exactly what his life had brought him to. He deserved exactly what he was getting. But then we see something that just blows our minds. And Jesus turns to this criminal. And as he's hanging there, bloody and bruised, every breath is excruciating in pain. Every word mustered is just an immense amount of pain. He actually turns and he talks to this criminal. Some of Jesus' last words and breath on this earth is directed to this criminal. And he says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, at this moment, granted the 11th hour convert the same eternal reward as Stephen. That's not fair. And you know that's not fair, just like me. Stephen was executed because of his righteousness. This man was being executed for his crimes. A few years later, he would join the apostle Paul. Paul, who was imprisoned, who was stoned, who was shipwrecked, who was snake bit. He was beaten and he was finally beheaded because of his relentless desire to extort the message of Jesus all over the known world. So why would a criminal be granted the entrance into the kingdom of God along with the men like Stephen and Paul? That is not fair. 
In fact, it's far better than fair. That is grace. And why so many people turn to religious systems, sometimes it, it baffles me. Because we, our natural inclination is to go, I need to be more like Stephen or like Paul. I got to love the law. I got to live an exemplary life. I got to do all that I can in order so that I could achieve some of God's grace. We turn to that. And religious systems all over the world throughout history have turned to the same thinking. Many people opt for a religious system rather than receive grace. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man, eight teachings found amongst the religious literature of American Indians, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Chinese, Judaism, and Christianity. And along with something very similar to the golden rule, there would be good things to pay attention that these all had in common. One, don't harm others with word or deed. Honor your parents. Be kind to siblings and elderly. Be honest in all your dealings. Don't lie. Don't have sex with another person's spouse. Care for those who are weaker. Put others first. The other things that these religious systems share is the assumption that people will fail to adhere their guidelines or those commands. Everybody and every religion always falls short. Religion tells us this, there is a God. God has standards by individuals to live by, but it's really hard, so good luck. See you on the other side, maybe. <laughs> Religion highlights our inability to live up to a divine standard. Thus, it creates a gap but experience tells us the same thing. Most people don't live up to the very own standards that they set for themselves. Many parents don't follow the, same, the rules that they establish for their own household. Our own, expect, our own um, experience tell us that we fall short. We fall short of our own expectations. We don't even need a religion to tell us that we really aren't all that good. But for some reason, we point to people like Stephen and like Paul and say that I must do that. I have to work and I have to do and I have to try and live a certain life and I got to tirelessly work and I got to, I got to bleed for the gospel. I got to do these things and if I don't, then God's not going to be there for me. We put God's grace on our own shoulders that we have to live up to. I've heard of it this way before, that there, there was a, a small child and he saw a bike in a, in, a, in a store and he loved that bike and he wanted that bike and he saw how much money it cost and so he decided I'm going to start to save for that and he began to save and he began to work and he began to stash away and he kept every, all his allowance and he did all his chores and he could do this and he got there and he finally had enough money for the bike. And so he brings it up to the counter and he says, I want to buy this bike. And the cashier says, you forgot about the tax. You're a few dollars short. 
And the boy weeped and he cried that I've wanted this bike for so long. And so the cashier, out of the goodness of his heart, said, I'm going to cover the other few dollars for you. For some reason, we relate that same story with God's grace. That I do all that I can. And after all that I do, then God's grace takes up the little bit that I wasn't able to do for myself. And many of you in here, you look at someone like Paul. You look at someone like Stephen. And you know you are not like them. I'm not like them. You look at Paul and how he was able to write, as of righteousness of the law, faultless. My guess is none of you could write that statement. I couldn't write that statement. But here's the thing. Many of you here in the room, although that you cannot write that and you know you have not kept the letter of the law, you know that you have not done, not done all the things right, you feel like because I have not done that, I have to somehow get my life in order just a little bit before I go to God because I have to bring him something. I might not bring him, be able to bring him all but the tax, but I got to bring him at least a dollar or two. And if I can't bring something in my life to show him that I've worked for you and I've done something for you, then he's never going to give me the grace that I see in the Bible. He's never going to give me the grace that's there. But let me tell you something. is that grace plus anything isn't grace at all. Your work and your effort, no matter how good or how uh, uh, miserable your work has been, it means nothing to how righteous and perfect standard God has set. But for some reason, we feel like I have to bring something to the party. But here's the thing is, is, is anything plus grace is like throwing your own surprise party. The moment that you begin to plan your own surprise party, it's no longer a surprise. The moment that you feel like you deserve grace, the moment that you feel like you, you need to bring something to, to the table, it is no longer grace. We've all had to say, I'm sorry. We've all had to say, I'm wrong. Once we fail, there's something in us that prompts us to try and make up for our failures with better behavior, generosity, or promises. And while we can do better going forward, there's nothing you can do about the past. We can't go back and be a better parent. You can't go back and be a better wife. You can't go back and be a different boyfriend. We can't go back and uncheat, unaddict, unlie. Being perfect going forward does not erase the past. That's what makes Christianity and the message of Jesus so unique in comparison to the other religious systems. That's what makes grace so powerful. That Jesus came into this world and he did something that nobody else could do. He affirmed the list and he said that the law was good and he followed it. He declared it all good. But then he offered himself as the answer to the question that no one could answer before. Now that I've messed up, what do I do? 
what the rules and the rule givers could not do, Jesus did by laying his life down as the full and final sacrifice for sin. Christ's death and resurrection signaled to the world that the kingdom of God is not reserved for good people. It is reserved for forgiven people. Because the gospel in reality is the fairest system imaginable. It's fairer than fair. Think about it. Everybody is invited. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirement. But this kind of fair didn't come without a price. Jesus bled and died to open the kingdom's doors wide enough for all of us good people sort of good people, not so good people, really bad people, people so bad they're hanging on the cross and they're lobbing any type of prayer out there so they don't have to spend eternity separated with God type of people. What Jesus did opened the door for every single person to be able to enter through. And grace was extremely costly, but it wasn't costly to you. And it wasn't costly to me. It was the sacrificial death of Jesus that gave God the latitude to grant the Stephens, the Sauls, the Pauls, the last minute converts of the world, the exact same eternal home. And it was Christ's death on the cross that makes the kingdom of God available to you and to me as well. That's not fair. That's far better than fair. That is grace, my friend. That's amazing grace. Paul put it this way in the book of Ephesians. He said, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. If anyone had anything to boast for, it was Paul. It was the Stevens of the world. But what Paul says here is what much like we want to do is we want to work our way just a little bit. But what Paul writes here is he knows that what the human condition of the heart would be is the moment that you step forward, you would boast about what you've done so that you'll spend eternal glory. But that's not grace. Anything plus grace is not grace. And here's the thing. I know that there's someone in here today that's going, well, what about obedience? You got to have obedience too. What about where Paul says that you can't just keep on sinning And let grace abound. I know someone in here is thinking that. But here's the problem. Is that any time we add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. And although it would seem like you would have to just balance the sermon out just a little bit. That's not a, that doesn't deserve to be there. Because you can't add anything to grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And if you're in here this morning, I want to pray for two different type of people. 
The first is this, that if you've never experienced the grace of God, you've never invited him into your life, You've never experienced the transformative power that comes by how Abraham received God's grace through faith and was declared righteous, how Stephen, how Paul, how this criminal received God's grace through their faith. If you've never experienced that, friend, God wants to pursue you this morning, that he loves you in spite of no matter what you've done. And I want you to pray a prayer that would allow that trust and that faith to open up, that through faith you can be saved this morning too. You can rest assured where you will be in eternity. Here's the second person. Is that if you're someone and you've been working hard, and you're someone who says that you follow Jesus, but what you really follow is your own laws, what you really follow is your own good works, and you've never been able to rest in the peace of Jesus that comes by way of his grace. That if you're someone who claims Jesus, but the way that you show it is by going to church, the way you show it is by doing good things, and that's really what you stand on, and you know that deep down inside that maybe you're a little bit like me when I was younger. Those were the things that I clung to. And I didn't cling to Jesus. I want to pray for you if that's you as well. So would you bow your heads with me? And if you're in those shoes somewhere that you've been working hard and you know it's got you nowhere, or you're someone who's never received the grace at all, and you want to enter into a relationship with Jesus right now, would you pray this prayer with me? God, I want to know you. Would you forgive me of my sin? I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me. It would pay the price of exactly what I deserve. Would you forgive me for those things? Would you come into my heart? I want to follow you the rest of my life. Cleanse me and make me new this morning. I receive your grace. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. If that was you praying that prayer, if, if right as Nate was speaking those words, but you were kind of right with him and saying, yes, that's me, and yes to those prayers, uh, you probably already have this intuitive sense that that's the beginning of something spectacular, the beginning of something life-transforming, right? The beginning of something uh, that just changes everything. And we're both excited for you, and we want to help support you in that journey as well. If that's you, if you would text the word yes, uh, to that number on the screen. That'll give us the opportunity to follow up with you, to hear a little bit of your story, to find out how we can best support you moving forward in your faith journey as well. We'd love the opportunity to do that, so go ahead and you can hop on your cell phones and do that. Um, as we come to the end of the service here, if you, got, uh, if you need someone to pray with you or pray for you about anything, we've got a prayer team that'll be over here on this side of the auditorium. 
if you're new or newer to the church and are feeling like, I really want to get connected and find out kind of what's next and how to do that, I'll be uh, waiting for you right over there. Looking forward to meeting you. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.